You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, if you have a Bible, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse, uh, actually we'll start this morning at verse 27. I'm going to do a little, uh, or actually 17, I'll backtrack a little bit and um, uh, get some context of what we're going to be talking about today. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll start at verse 17. Last week, we looked at the glory of the Jesus meal. Um, the bread and the cup. And we said last week that Jesus loved to eat. Um, The Son of Man came what? Who remembers? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And we talked about how that was the the, the mission, the the mode of Jesus' evangelism, the mode of Jesus' mission last week was that he came eating and drinking. And we talked about why the importance of meals. Why are they important? Why were they so important to Jesus' mission? And here's what we said last week. Meals... Are, were important to the mission of Jesus because meals were a sign of friendship. Meals were a sign of acceptance, and meals were a sign of grace. No meal characterized the friendship, the acceptance, and the grace of Jesus more than the Last Supper, the last meal he ate with his disciples on this earth. At that Last Supper, as we looked at last week, Jesus has given to us, the church, a perpetual meal to eat, A meal to eat over and over and over again. It's the meal that we will take at the end of our time together, the the bread and the cup. It's a meal that the church is to eat over and over and over again as a reminder of what Christ has done and a meal that binds us together as a communion and a community, a meal that binds us together as followers of Jesus. That's what we, we talked about last week. And so let's now read in 1 Corinthians how the, the church in Corinth got this meal wrong. So if you would with me, verse 17, let me just read kind of what we covered last week and then move into uh, verse 27 and beyond where we'll be this week. Verse 17, Paul writing to the Corinthian church about this idea, this um, meal, this supper, this communion feast. And the following directives, I have no praise for you, he writes to them. For your meetings, when you come together, you do more harm than good. Let me tell you why. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church and you you share a meal, there are divisions among you. And, you, and some, to some extent, I actually believe that there are. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you eat, you're eating. Some of you go ahead with your own private supper. It's not the Lord's supper, it's your supper. As a result, one person remains hungry in your church and other people get drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or you just... Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord. And Paul's saying, I didn't make up a religion here. I didn't make up a movement. I got what I received, I gave to you. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. You might want to underline that, those three words, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you 
you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now this is new territory for us. So then, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, that's, a, that's another way of saying not just Christ's communion body, but this church is his body. If you eat and drink not discerning the body of Christ, you eat and drink judgment on yourselves. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and a number of you have died. That's a euphemism for death, by the way. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it might not, may not result in judgment. And when I come to you, I will give you further instructions. Basically, when I come to you, it's not going to be pretty. Okay, that's our text. Let's pray. God, help us to listen and discern what's going on in this church, even right now. Give us the grace to, uh, to apply the things that we're going to learn. Give us the grace to, to adjust our lives accordingly to your word. By your grace, we submit ourselves under your authority together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I, I always said when we... Um, when, when I, before I was a, uh, before we planted this church, before, when I was a, uh, a pastor in, in, in Bakersfield, that's where I was, I was born and raised, and that's right, <laughs> whoever said that, um, in Bakersfield, and then when I moved here, I always said that I won't, I don't believe in experimenting with the church. It's not my church to experiment with, it's Christ's church. And so why would I even try to experiment with this church? And so we kind of endeavor not to experiment with God, so not try things out and so on and so forth. But the, having said that, when I look back over the three and a half years since we've been here as a church, I would say what we've done here and putting so much emphasis on community has been somewhat of an experiment. Starting a church and saying we have so much emphasis on community, you've, had, you've heard us say this probably since you've been here. Get into a community group. Join a community group. Be in community. Live in life rhythm with your community. Now, I, I think we all love the idea of church as a community, and we all believe that the church should be a family. And I think that that, that, that does something to us, especially those of us that um, live in San Francisco. I, I'd say a majority of people in this room were not born and raised in San Francisco. I'd say a, a huge number or amount of people that live in San Francisco today, weren't born and raised here. And so because of that, we want to, we, we need a family. We, a lot of us live pretty far away from our families. And we need a community because we don't have that built-in community when we move here. We might have uprooted our lives, moved here for a job or something or school, and then planted here, and we might now want to live here for a very long time, but now we need community. We need those, those relationships. We need those deep-seated and rooted relationships. But if you were born and raised here, this church is only three and a half years old. So most likely, you didn't grow up with the people around you. And so it, the reason why I'd say that our community here is, is a bit of an experiment is that we've taken all these people from different backgrounds. Some of you guys grew up in the Bible Belt. 
and you're here and it's shocking to you to be here. Like you walk around going, oh my gosh, this is insane. Some of you are from the Bay Area and none of this shocks you at all. And then you guys get in community group together and someone says something and the person from the Bible book goes, what are you talking about? That's not a thing. This is what, don't you, haven't you read? And the other person's like, what? Are you crazy? Like, and it could be politics. It could be ideas of, of liberal sexuality. It could be ideas of how to date. It could be ideas of how to even be, function in community in a, in a church, what accountability looks like, what going to church means, that sort of thing. And so we've taken all these people from all these different walks of life, demographics, socioeconomic backgrounds, and we mash them all together. And we put them in groups, and it's like, that's your new family. Have fun. <laughs> that is a crazy experiment. I, and I don't, I don't think it was an experiment when we started, but looking back, I'm going, whoa, that was kind of, that was kind of wild. And the, the experiment part is that you ha- you're in this church, and this church, what we expect you to be in a highly relational, highly accountable, a highly interconnected group. But this group that you enter into when you start in a community in this church has a very low bar of entry. And a lot of it is just show up. How do I go to your community group? Well, you show up. I'm like, oh, really? I don't have to pay anything? I don't have to like get blood or like what? No, just show up on Tuesday nights and then be a part of our family. That's a pretty low bar of entry. And also when we enter into the, the community of faith, it's like believe upon Christ. I mean, that's not, that's not a low bar of entry. That's actually high. But in the sense of like believing, like I'm believing and I'm in, it's, it's pretty low, but, what we're, but the risk is such higher because the risk is this. The church, by its very nature, is a community of obligation. So you just show up on a Tuesday night and you say, hey, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm following Jesus. I'm in this church. I, I, I'm now believing in Christ, and I want to be part of a community. And so I show up at your group, and then all of a sudden these people around you that you don't know are like, okay, we're obligated to you, and you're obligated to us. You're like, Whoa. I just met you. There's no way, but that's the very nature of the church is a church, a community of obligation. The church is not like joining a gym where you pay your dues and you go work out, but you're free to leave when you don't like the classes they offer anymore. You're like, you had a nine o'clock yoga class, it was perfect for me. You moved to seven, I'm out. Like, there's no way I'm gonna be part of this gym anymore. I'm going, I'm taking my money to some other yoga place or whatever. It's not like that. We've made the church that, but it's not supposed to be that way. The church in its purest form is found here in an account of Dr. Luke, who writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And when he starts the book of Luke, he says, I want to give you a detailed account of things that happened. He was a doctor, so he's very detailed. I want to give you a detailed historical account of what happened with Jesus and then the birth of the church. And here's the church in its purest form, Acts chapter 2. All the believers devoted, and look, see if you could find words that talk about obligation, interconnectedness, committed. All the believers were devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship, and they shared their meals, including the Lord's Supper, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And all the believers met in one place and shared everything they had. The believers, the purest form of the church is that we share what we have. We share our material possessions with one another. A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders, and they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. 
They worshiped together at the temple each day and met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. Each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Do you notice the obligation that's found there? The obligation that the church has for each other? The interconnectedness, the sheer responsibility that they felt for one another? When there was someone who was lacking in the church, you felt obligated if you had whatever you had to share it with them. Oh, you can't pay your rent or you're getting kicked out of your house because you're now a follower of Jesus. Now we have to take care of you. I'm obligated to you. How do I help serve? How do I serve you? There is a sense of obligation. See, a lot of us have reduced Christianity to strictly a classroom relationship. And that kind of makes sense. I mean, you're in rows, and I have a mic, so it might feel like a, a little bit like a classroom in here right now. People think that the Christian church is simply where you come to learn, where you hear and wrestle with Christianity as a worldview. You hear the stories of Jesus, and you wrestle with them personally, and, you're, and you, you come to church alone, you leave alone, and there's, nothing, there's no other person around. You might sit by someone else, but only for an hour and a half, and as soon as that, you're done. I mean, you're like, I'll be close to you for an hour and a half, but then this is my little interaction with Jesus here. And I come here to learn, and it's this one-way teacher-student sort of thing. Now, if that's you, that, I mean, if you're in this room right now and you're wrestling with Christianity and you've been thinking about Christianity and someone invited you, that's fine. This is a great place to do that. But that's not, Christianity was never meant to be a mere exercise in intellect. Christianity was never meant for you just to sit there and go, okay, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know. I, I might believe that. I don't know. I'm going to keep coming until I can accept that. Christianity was meant, the Christian faith is to be experienced. The Christian faith is, faith is something to be experienced. One of the psalmists wrote in Psalm 38 or 34, verse 8, Taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Come and taste and see that God is good. Come and taste and see what happens in community. It happens figuratively and literally around a table. Taste and see that God is good, that God's community is good. Come around this table figuratively and very literally as you guys gather in groups. Taste and see that God is good. Taste and see that this, this, this Christian faith can be experienced. And it's not simply a classroom lecture. And I'll be honest. When we get around a table like this, and you and I get around a table and we start experiencing Christian community, it's not pretty sometimes. Christian community can be very ugly. Community, has, community is more than some theoretical community that we talk about once a week and dream up. Christian community is real people with all of their real problems, their quirks, their awkwardness, and their drama around a table sharing life. Christian community is what happens when all points of life touch the other. You eat together, you live in life rhythm together, you journey together, you trip together, you might even vacation together. You live with all of your lives connecting to all of their lives. You celebrate together, you mourn together. And then what happens when we're doing this well, when we're doing life rhythm well together, we're living in community, what will happen, and this is how we'll know if we're living well together, is that problems will arise. And that's why I think this is an experiment. 
Problems will arise in our church when we're living together in community. See, it's easy to love people in some abstract sense, and it's easy to preach on love, but the Christian faith calls us to love real people who sit around a common table. See, when you sit around a common table, the real you comes out. When you start sharing life with your community groups, the real you comes out. The fake Christian smile peels away. The I'm doing well, brother, goes away really fast. For the first couple of community groups, when prayer requests start going around, you might say, I just need prayer that, um, that I would be really close to God. That's what I pray for. That, that sort of generic prayer. And then when you're around for months, it starts getting gritty. It starts getting, the, the real you comes out. And when that happens, tension arises. It's happened here at this church. It's happening right now at this church. What happens when people in your community circle start to date one another? Or what happens when they break up? Even worse. If you date in here, and you're dating someone in your community group or your community groups are connected somehow, there's a lot of tension there because all your friends are like, you're dating, but then they kind of broke up and like, how do we treat, like, how do we treat someone who we're dating in this church? I'm this is not a sermon on dating at all. <laughs> I know you guys want that. It's not happening right now. <laughs> but I will just say this. If you date somebody in this church, anyone you date, but I'll just say especially in this church, treat them like you would want someone to treat your spouse if they were dating your spouse before you got married. Start there. I want to treat you like I would want someone to treat my spouse before I married them. I'm going to be a complete Christian, walk in holiness, not manipulate you, not destroy you, not mess you up spiritually. Or what happens when they go out on a date in your community circle, just one, and then it doesn't work out? How do you like say, I don't want to date that person anymore? We've had people leave the church over this. Like I had dated someone in the group and like got weird and like I didn't think it worked out well. And now all the girls in there think I'm weird. Now I'm like branded as the don't, do, don't date that guy. So I think I have to leave. I have to go find some other people to date. I'm like, what are you talking? Like that isn't, that's not community. That's not family. What happens when you, you're at a group and you drink too much? And that part of you that you keep hidden comes out and people see it. What happens when it goes too far sexually? What happens when someone's sexual ideology doesn't fit with yours and you're in community together? What happens when someone else's spending habits or even their saving habits contradict the Bible's values of generosity? What happens when you realize someone in your group treats women really, really, really badly? or treats men really, really, really badly? How do you confront them? These are the things that we're all wrestling through. We have a hundred of these problems in every group probably. These are the things that we wrestle through and what happens is this, as our lives connect, as our lives connect, these problems come out because you are broken humans. I am. We experience stuff, relational stuff like this in our staff. I mean, not this stuff, dating, that's weird. Okay, but other things. <laughs> in our staff. And I know that's happening in our community group. I know because the closer you live together, the more you realize that I am, 
it's like this, uh, Proverbs talks about this, ironing sharpens iron, this like um, forging of relationships through, uh, uh, on an anvil or, or through a fiery furnace. That, that sort of thing sharpens us. That sort of thing, we work things out. And so this is what community is. And all of these problems, by the way, keep ev- all our elders up at night, constantly. Now, this is the hope that I take. This is the hope that I have for this church, that we're not the first experiment in the Christian community. And we're not the first Christian community to have problems. Corinth was a church with problems because they were a community of Jews and they were a community of Greeks. They were competing ideologies, they had different worldviews, and they were all submitting their new lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ, or at least they were trying to. Jews, had, they believed one way about sexuality and Jews believed one thing about idols. Greeks thought completely different about how both sex and idols were even practiced. And they mashed them together. They're like, you worship your idol through sex. Don't we do that in the church? And they're like, and no, that's not how you do it in the church. And so you had those competing ideologies, and Paul's writing to correct that in here in 1 Corinthians. Corinth was a church of rich and poor. You had very, very wealthy people in the church in Corinth, and you had poor people. Some, oftentimes they were slaves or recently freedmen who were used to being at the bottom of the social class. And you had these rich men and and people who threw lavish parties and ate with all their rich buddies. Now, there was a redemptive way forward for them in the church. And there is a redemptive way forward for us. And the way forward is found in this one word, communion. A way forward for the church, for us, church. And for this church was communion. Now, what is communion? A definition from the very reliable Wikipedia. (laughs) You might think I crammed for this sermon since I'm quoting Wikipedia, but I promise I did not. In Christianity, the basic meaning of the term communion is an especially close relationship of Christians as individuals or as a church with God and with other Christians. In a special way, the term communion is applied to sharing the Eucharist, the meal, this, over here that we'll do at the end, by partaking of the consecrated bread and wine, an action seen as entering into a particularly close relationship with Christ. So communion has this idea of being unified. We're in close relationship together. It's community, like, amplified. And we do that around a table that says that we're in communion with Jesus and we're in communion with one another. Now, how do we become a culture of communion with problems in our church that will always be there? How do we keep moving forward? How do we become a culture of union and true fellowship? One theologian, or actually Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Christian community is not an ideal that we have to realize. Christian community is not something that we kind of dream up as this ideal state of utopia and go, let's all try to do that, guys. No, no, he says this. But rather a reality created by God in Christ in in which we may participate. Community isn't something that we're just like making up as we go along. Community is a reality that that was forged in Jesus' death and then all of us are invited to participate in it. It's a reality that's there that Christ set and, and and Christ is inviting us all into communion. And he's invited us all, all of us together into community. That's what's happening here. So, let's start here. Communion is something that we enter into, a reality that we participate in. 
Community, communion rather, is something we enter into, a reality we participate in. And this is what Jesus created. Now, how do we move into it? How do we move into this reality of communion? Especially being a community that has, just like Corinth had, problems. How do we move into being a true communion and community? Three things. And I move rather quick through these three things. Proclaim the same thing. This is what the text teaches us. Proclaim the same thing. Examine the same thing. And discern the same thing. Proclaim the same thing together as a church. Examine the same thing together as a church. And discern the same thing together as a church. First, proclaim. Paul says this in verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you eat this bread, when you take the bread and you take the cup, you're proclaiming something. You're saying something to the world when the church gathers in line together on a Sunday morning and they all take communion together. When at your community groups or in your communion meals away from here, when you gather around the table and remember the, the, the Christ's body broken through the bread and his blood poured out in the covenant that we have in him through the wine, we're, we're saying something to the whole world. Now, communion is a meal that's different from any other meal. Last week I said, hey guys, we should be eating together. Now, I think we should be eating together. We have eat-ups, we have you guys' community groups are hosting meals this, the last couple of weeks. All of that is great. But the communion meal is different from every other meal. The communion meal is different. When we receive communion on Sunday, and when you celebrate the bread and the wine in your community groups, it's different than any old meal. See, in a normal, normal meal, you are not proclaiming the Lord's death. You're proclaiming, you know, like God's goodness. You're proclaiming really talented chefs. You're proclaiming great organic food or whatever you do when you're proclaiming when you eat when you eat. You're proclaiming something when you eat, but you're not, you're not always proclaiming the Lord's death. That's what separates this meal from any other meal. This meal says something. This meal says something. When you have a communion meal with your community groups, when we take the bread and the cup in a second, this meal says something. An example, um, there's a, a restaurant down the, the road here, um, one of my favorites. It's, uh, it was, it's called Gracias Madre. It's a vegan Mexican restaurant. Don't judge. Vegan Mexican doesn't go together. It does. Beautifully. Okay. And in this restaurant, there's like common tables. They're just long common tables. You sit there and you're sitting with these random people like you just don't know. Now, when you sit there and you, and, you, and you have a meal around a common table with people, eating around a common table at Gracias Madre with strangers is different than having a date with someone at Gracias Madre. Same meal. You're eating in almost the same exact proximity, but a date means something different. If you were to take someone on a date to Gracias Madre, I recommend it, it's good food. If you were to take someone on a date to Gracias Madre and, and you were sitting around a common table with people and you ignored your date the entire time and you just talked to the person next to you, you would be offending your date. Date one-on-one, okay? I'm just helping you, okay? If you ignored your date and just talked to the person next to you and you're like, oh my gosh, we really hit it off, but I was like totally ignored, that would be a very bad date. You would be a bad date because the date means something else. This meal means something different than this meal here. Same meal. Same table, same proximity. This means something different. What Paul is saying is that when you share a communion meal, you might be eating the same elements, you might be celebrating with, around the same people, but a communion meal says something different. A communion meal proclaims the death of Jesus. 
The communion meal proclaims that Christ died for us. The communion meal points to something else. It says something. It means something. It's to embody something. Just like a date is to embody something. A date means something. It says something. A communion meal says something. That's what Paul's saying here when he says this. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim. To eat it means to embody it. The question is, when we gather to take communion on Sunday or in your communities, is the meal recognizable as a proclamation of the Lord's death. When we take this meal together, church, as we will in a a bit, are we really proclaiming the Lord's death? When you are around a table in your community, are you proclaiming the Lord's death? Well, I guess we should ask the question, how do we proclaim the Lord's death? Why did Christ die? Here's why Christ died. Christ died to to take our judgment of sin. Christ died to take our judgment of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ became sin. He took our sin, our judgment on himself, so that we become the righteousness of God. So what is that saying? When we eat this meal together, when you're, at, when you're in your community and you're eating a communion meal together, what you're saying is this. Sin is very serious. That's what you're saying. Sin is so serious that Christ fell under the judgment of our, that our sin warranted. Christ fell under the judgment. He fell under death. So when we eat a meal together, we recognize sin is serious. When we line up and take communion here, we're saying, we're lining up church, and I know we live in a very liberal city. We're saying sin is very serious. When you're in your community groups, you don't just brush it off like, oh, sin's no big deal. Sin's serious, serious enough that Christ's body had to be broken like this bread's broken. Christ's blood, has had, blood had to be poured out like when we opened this great bottle of wine and poured out this wine. Christ's blood had to be poured out because our sin required that. For us to receive forgiveness. Sin is serious. That's why we confess our need and confess our faults to one another in community. That's why we say Christ's body is broken. And then we say Christ's body was broken for us. Not only was Christ's body broken, but it's broken for us because we needed saving, because we needed forgiveness. That's what this meal proclaims. The second thing this mil- the, the, the death of Christ proclaims is that Christ died to offer us grace and forgiveness. Christ died to offer us grace and forgiveness. Romans 3.22 says, Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Church, when we take this meal together, we proclaim that at the table we are sinners saved by a common sacrifice. That all of us are sinners. We do not sit at this table saying, I grew up in a better household than you grew up in. I know a better biblical sex ethic than you know. I have a better hold on my tongue than you do. I don't ever consume secular music and you do. Like, I don't sit, we don't sit in a group doing that. We sit in a group that, that both balances sin is serious and grace is offered freely through Jesus. 
his body for us. And so when we sit around a table, we realize that it was his body broken for us. This is a table of grace. Everyone is welcome at this table. If Judas Iscariot was welcome at that table, anyone's welcomed at that table. If the person who would betray Jesus Christ was at that table in the Last Supper, we can get there too. Second, or third, Christ died to meet our deepest needs. Christ died to meet our deepest needs. Isaiah 53, in an Old Testament prophecy of Jesus Christ, it says this, Surely he, speaking of Christ, took our, up our pain and he bore, up our, he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. When we take this meal together, we together proclaim that we are to embody this life given for us. His life was given for us, and when we sit around this table, we say this, our lives given for one another. We sit around this table and we say, if his life was given for us and he leveraged all he had in heaven to save us, what do I have to leverage to, to serve you? If he came as a servant, how do I embody that in this circle? How do I be a servant? This means we sit around the table and we say, how can we serve one another? How can we lay our lives down for the others around this table? And how can we invite others in, this ta- in and around this table that are not here right now by leveraging what we have by serving them? See, there will always be collateral damage when we share our tables. When, if you opened up your home this week to your community group, or you cooked, or you, ha- or you host a community group, there's collateral damage. We all know this. It costs money, time, resources, emotional energy, spiritual strength to be in community. But listen, God welcoming us into his home, it cost him the blood of his own son. As Tim Chester says in that book I recommend at the very beginning, the hospitality of God embodied in the table fellowship of Jesus is a celebration and sign of his grace and generosity. And we're to imitate that generosity. We're to sit around a table with one another and say, how can we serve each other? In what ways can we leverage what we have to to serve this group? We have to, together, church, do this. We have to, together, proclaim the same thing. But secondly, not only do we proclaim the same thing, the way that we participate in communion is by examining the same thing. We have to examine the exact same thing. Look what Paul says. He says, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and they drink the cup. Everyone ought to examine themselves. When I was on vacation in August with my wife, um, there was a blog posted on medium.com that got a lot of attention. It was titled, 10 Things I Hate About You, San Francisco Edition. You probably read it or heard about it. I heard about it from several people when I got back from our vacation back into town. I found the post, which at that time had been taken down, and I read a lot of the responses circling around all over the interwebs. Now, I think there, that we are all guilty of hating things that from another angle are completely beautiful. And though the speech of the author who wrote this blog could be seen as very hurtful, I want to point out an indiscrepancy that this blog made, but most of us do it anyway without even noticing it, without even thinking about it. 
in the blog, he just writes, and he's a guy in a startup here, and he just writes the 10 things he hates about San Francisco and goes through why San Francisco is such a horrible city. And everyone, I mean, this thing got just tons of hits and tons of responses and everybody just hating on him. And a follow-up disclaimer, the writer put on his blog after everyone was just kind of just hitting him back with all the stuff, he wrote this on his blog. Before you read it, he said, this piece was written by me. Hate all you want, but please stop bringing my company into this. Now here's the problem. Can we separate ourselves from what we create? See, this is the question of embodiment. The company he helps start has the stated value on their website of this. We're passionate about making things people love. The question is, and what everyone asked him basically was this, without saying it, are you embodying that? If that's your stated value as a person, as a company, are you embodying that? At the beginning of the year, I met with a gathering of Christ, uh, the Christian tech community that was meeting um, in Soma, and as they were trying to pull their talents and their resources to create something for the common good, they asked me to do a five-minute little talk before they started brainstorming and collaborating. And what I felt compelled to tell them was to embody what they were creating. If they were trying to create a prayer app, I asked them, are they creating it in a culture of prayer? If you're creating an app to mobilize people to give and to meet needs, are you creating that in a culture of generosity and giving? See, why I think the 10 Things blog got so many responses isn't just because people who love this city were mad or because the language he used, though I think a lot of it, of that played into it. I think the reason why people got so angry was because he, if he was really part of creating things people love, why wasn't he part of creating a great city? Why wasn't he embodying that where he lived? Now listen, at this point, every single one of us are guilty. Not just the author of this blog, most of us in this room are guilty of this. This is exactly what Corinth was guilty of. Not embodying what you are proclaiming. You are saying something, but you are not living that thing. You are saying these are our values, but you're not embodying those values. You've disconnected yourself from the reality of those values. And this is why people really hated that blog. And, and don't think that he's just guilty. We're all guilty of this. Are you embodying what you are proclaiming? This is what Paul was getting at here. This is what unworthy manner means. You say that this is a meal of grace. You say that this is a meal of generosity. You say that this is a meal of how serious sin is. But you guys are getting drunk at this meal, which is clearly of sin. And you guys are not being generous with what you have. You're being stingy with your food. One person remains hungry. The other person is lavished and is drunk by the time everyone gets there. You are proclaiming a, a, a Christ who died to bring people in, and you're keeping people out. You are proclaiming that Christ died for sin, but you are in sin while you're eating the meal. And Paul even says, when you eat the meal, you're not celebrating the fact that Christ was judged. You're actually judging yourself. You're actually entering into the very reason why Christ had to die, because of sin. And by saying that Christ died for sin, you're saying we're eating and we're heaping more sin on ourselves, and we're heaping more scorn on Christ. It's like we're re-crucifying Christ all over again every time we eat. So Paul says, you have to examine yourselves. 
look within and ask this hard question. Are we embodying what we are proclaiming? Are we saying something and then church, are we embodying it? If we're saying that Christ has died to forgive sinners and as Paul says, I am the chief of all sinners. Are we embodying that? Are we keeping people out of our fellowship? Are we keeping people out of this church? Are we keeping people out because, well, they just don't fit the mold. Well, they, they're just not like, they're not like us. Christ ate with sinners. See, is this church, is church and communion and community, is this just about me having a religious experience or me having a good meal? Is, is, are you coming to church just so that you can have a religious experience? So when we gather, the focus must not be on satisfying some merely personal desire or hunger. When we gather, we proclaim and we embody. And those two things have to work together. Those two things, we proclaim something, but we also embody something. And so Paul says, examine yourselves. Are you embodying that? Are there ways that you, are you, are you just in this for yourself? Are there ways that it's all just about you? Are those those ways? Then repent of those things. And come to communion repenting. Come to your communion realizing that you have need. The third thing, lastly, to become a culture of communion, we have to discern the same thing. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are sick and weak, or weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for dying. Now, Paul's not saying this. He's not saying this. He's not saying, okay, some of you guys are eating in this other room, you're rich people, and then you guys getting too drunk, and then the, the drunk people are getting sick and dying, and the poor people are, are being blessed. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying as soon as you sin, like judgment, and then you get sick, and like, oh, I'm sick, I must have sinned, and now you died, and like, oh, yeah, he was truly the sinner. Like, he just died. That's not what Paul's saying. He's actually saying the whole body's sick. Like, rich and poor, you guys keep getting sick. Your body is sick because of the way that you're taking communion, the way that you're interacting. There, there's a physical sickness that's manifesting itself uh, because of a spiritual problem. You're spiritually sick, and it's manifesting itself in your body. You're a holistic person. We all know that emotions can manifest themselves physically. Stress can manifest itself physically. Spiritual sickness can manifest itself physically. And Paul's saying, hey, you guys, you guys are, as a body, you guys are all sick because you're not doing this right. He said, but if you were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Now, admittedly, this is the point where some of you might check out. Some of you guys might stop and just like, listen, I'm over this. This is why I don't like Christianity. Christianity is all about self-abasement. All you do in Christianity is feel guilty. Move on already. And that's why a lot of people just leave, walk away from Christianity. It's like, oh, it's just all about beating myself up for what I've done. Can we move on? Have you ever... And I would just ask you this. Have you ever kept doing the same thing over and over and over, like a pattern, and didn't know how to break free from it? Like every relationship ended the same way and you kept thinking it was the other person? But you had this biting feeling that it might be you, but you just don't know how to change? Like you had this character flaw that came out when you're angry and you said things that you can't take back and it destroyed people you care about, but you don't know how to stop doing it? 
Because when you get angry, just these emotions come out and you don't know how to deal with it. Or maybe you keep going back to destructive relationships or destructive patterns or maybe even destructive chemicals. And the result of those patterns and these repeated actions maybe feel like judgment. Consequences is another way of putting it. And sometimes you don't even have to bring God into this whole thing. It's the old adage, you reap what you sow. Some people even call this karma. What this text is actually saying is that if you would judge yourself, if you would take a good hard look in the mirror and realize that you have need for forgiveness and that you have need for change, that's a start. See, when we confess our sins, we are not groveling in guilt, but we are dealing with our guilt. If we deny our sins, we will never get free from them. When we confess our sins, we are not groveling in guilt, but we are dealing with our guilt. We are recognizing that this thing is here, and it's real, and I'm dealing with it. If we deny our sins, we will never get free from our sins. That's what this text teaches us. Discerning means discerning our own need for God and discerning the needs that we have in our community. One scholar wrote, each each participant in the meal declares, proclaims, or preaches in the breaking of bread that Christ died. And then in eating the bread and drinking from the cup, they proclaim this, Christ died for me. I appreciate, I I appropriate this death for me. I take Christ as mine, even as I take and receive the broken bread and the wine poured out. See, the broken bread means Christ died, and when we take it together, we're saying this in a circle, Christ died for me, Christ died for us. I'm dealing with my guilt. I'm going to the, I'm going to the community. I'm going to Christ. I'm dealing with this. So, some practical takeaways. A couple things before we, we move on. First thing, perceive the connection between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to perceive the connection. We have to realize that we're in this together. This is not just a private act of piety focused on individual forgiveness. Even though we take, most of the time, we take communion by saying, when you're ready, would you come up and receive communion? Even that isn't necessarily a personal act. We're doing it together. We should observe the people that are in line for communion. We should pray for those in line at communion. When we stand in line together, we should realize that we're standing together in line. We should be praying for the people around us. When we take communion, observe the line. We're in this together. And beware of the needs. As you take communion in your community groups, beware of the need. There's, one, there's a couple of community groups that have started, um, I forget what they're calling it, Common Meal or something like that, um, something cool. And... Um, and they start, they start, what was it called? I didn't understand a word you said. <laughs> intentional dinners. Okay, thank you. Intentional dinners. And what they do, they have community group, and then they have these intentional dinners of like six, eight, nine, ten people. Some number. Don't screen out. I don't know. I'm getting this wrong, but the point is right. Believe me. <laughs> and they have these intentional dinners of like six people, and they all share a common meal. And then during the meal, they share their needs. What needs do you have? And then that group, that table meets those needs immediately. They don't just go, oh, yeah, yeah, we should pray about it. Like, okay, like one of them came up, someone, a relative or mom recently passed away. They couldn't get home to visit. And they all just like threw out money in the middle of the table and bought them a ticket right there on the spot. Like what needs do you have? And then they meet them right then. 
Like emotional needs, they, they spend time ministering to them. If they're physical needs, they meet those needs together. That's a communion meal. That's like being aware of the community. Like, okay, we're not just going to drink the wine. Oh my gosh, it's such good wine. The bread, oh, Acme bread, this is so good. Like, that's not what this is. Like, yes, we enjoy the wine. We enjoy the bread. But if we don't do it discerning the body, we're doing it wrong. So this is, this is what this looks like. We should perceive the connection between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should remember Christ's death, secondly. See, one uh, um, commentator wrote, to know Jesus rightly is to know him through the Eucharist story, the Eucharistic story. To know ourselves rightly is to know ourselves as the recipients of his self-giving. To know Jesus rightly, we have to know him through this story, this story of his body broken, his blood poured out. That's how we know Jesus. That's how many of you have kind of physically acknowledged that you are following Christ by coming forward and taking communion for the first time. You've entered into the story, his body broken for me, his blood poured out. But also, to know ourselves rightly is to know ourselves as the recipients of this self-giving. To know us truly it's to know that we're all recipients of this. We're all a family. We're all one body. We receive communion, church. We don't take it. We receive it. This means when we approach the table, we acknowledge our desperate need. See, the possibility of taking it in an unworthy manner does not mean that we approach it perfectly. I'm not asking you today to approach the table perfectly. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, saying, I'm not saying if you are in any trespass or sin, don't come forward. I'm not saying that's not what this text is saying. We cannot say that. This meal is a sinner's meal. You do not have to get rid of your sin in order to partake. This meal is to, is to receive the assurance that Christ receives us as sinners. As we get in line, we acknowledge that we have need together, and we step forward. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that our community would grow in deep communion right now with one another and with you. That this would not be some fake meal that we eat, that we would feel connected, Holy Spirit, that you would, that you would cause us to feel connected to one another and that you would grow us in depth. Even as we gather in groups throughout this week, even as we break off in our own intentional meals and intentional dinners and, and celebrate the Eucharist together, God, I pray that you would, that you would cause us to deal with Sin issues, pride issues. That we wouldn't just look out for ourselves, but for one another. That you would make us one as you, Jesus and the Father, are one, that you would make us one. I pray that the oneness that's found at this church and our church with the other churches would proclaim that Christ has come, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen and he's coming again. In Jesus' name.